Welcome along. It's uh, an interview uh, day today, uh, back on the Red Star Radio podcast. And today I'm very pleased to be joined again for the second time by Carlos Garrido of Midwestern Marks. He's the uh, founder and co-editor of uh, Midwestern Marks, and he's here today to talk about his most recent work, which is entitled The Purity Fetish and the Crisis of Western Marxism. Carlos, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back. It was a very enjoyable talk that we had last time, and I, I hope to have uh, something along the same lines this time. Yes, it's a uh, very interesting uh, work and, of course, a very uh, uh, pertinent one, given the state of the left in both your country and mine. I think uh, the the two left share a lot in common and reading your uh, work about the uh, objective state of things in the United States, it seems to be that you have many similar problems to what some of us in this country are trying to wrestle with here. But I wanted to start with the with the title, with the title of uh, Purity Fetish, because it's quite an interesting way of putting it. Could you explain to uh, listeners and viewers who maybe are a little bit confused by that, like what exactly is it you, that you're referring to with, with that term? Right. Um, well, the purity fetish is a concept that I first developed, I believe, in October 2021 in the form of an article, um, which ended up getting um, quite some uh, sharing around. It was translated into a few uh, different languages and, and published in various magazines. And um, it became a central concept for um, me and, and the folks uh, at, at the Midwestern Marx Institute to think through some of the flaws that we were observing in in the contemporary American left. Um, and at the time when I first developed the concept, it uh, referred specifically to the way in which I felt uh, the dominant form in which the Western Marxist tradition, um, which isn't just like a geographical category, even though it's not non-geographical, right? In the West, you've had communist parties that haven't had some of these flaws. Um, but the way that the Western Marxist tradition approach their rejections and condemnations of socialism and socialist experiments, which of course have, have uh, primarily taken root in the global East and in the global South. And uh, the way that I saw that uh, was through uh, the purity fetish. They uh, have the certain set of almost grocery list like uh, lists of things that uh, when achieved, that means that you have socialism, these pure ideas of what socialism is, and they obsess over these uh, pure checklists. And if a country, if, if if a real life socialist experiment does not measure up to these pure ideals, then they are condemned. That's the, mm -hmm. the, the that was the essence of the idea when I was first developing it. It was uh, in part piggying back on uh, or, or developing um, an analysis that was already somewhat present in uh, a Brazilian communist named Jones Manel, um, who was uh, elaborating a similar concept of the fetish of defeat on the basis of his analysis of Domenico Lasordo's work, uh, specifically uh, the book Western Marxism, which is just being translated um, into English with a new introduction from um, one of our comrades, uh, Gabriel Rocco and Jennifer uh, Ponce de Leon. And in this book, similar themes are are threaded out and part of what the analysis uh, that they produce say that this ideological flaw is rooted in is in the tradition of of Christianity and messianism that uh, embeds the worldview of the Western Marxists and blinds them uh, in many ways to the fact that these are flaws and uh, incompatible with the Marxist worldview. Part of what I do in my extension of that argument is show that this worldview is uh, only present in Christianity because it's already uh, present in the debates on the question of change in Greek philosophy that take root 500 years before there even is uh, a Christ. And uh, what I end up doing, what I did in that article and what I uh, develop uh, more thoroughly and in a more refined fashion in the book is show uh, genealogical how the origins of this worldview, which ideologically grounds the positioning of Western Marxists and, and American Marxists, uh, how it can be traced to this uh, Iliadic worldview, the school of philosophy, that, that, that it was called the Iliadics, 
the pri primary uh, thinker was a, a figure by the name of Parmenides and one of his students, Zeno. And for that school, uh, the true, that which was true was uh, comparable to uh, that which was one, uh, to a one that was homogeneous, so that uh, didn't allow of contradiction. Contradiction was something that uh, if if it showed up, it was a signified falseness, it signified the way of opinion, it signified that something in your thought went wrong. Um, change was considered to be an illusion. And these uh, were the debates that were being engaged with another uh, key philosopher, uh, Heraclitus, who postulated uh, in, in a very, the first dialectical philosopher, basically, that um, everything is in constant flux that uh, the existence of this flux is rooted in the fact that there's contradictions within everything and that yes there is such a thing as a totality of one but that one includes within it the many that means that uh, you know holes are not uh, homogeneous they don't have uh, complete uniformity inside there is the existence of contradictions of the what we would call later a unity and struggle of opposites within things and so um i phrase uh, the ideological uh, grounds of the Western Marxism, this purity fetish outlook, which I trace back to this idiotic school. And I say that the outlook that is in contradistinction to this, although I don't think the two are from the lens of the development of the history of philosophy incompatible, you know, the, the idiotic outlook played a specific role in certain moments in history that was progressive. And it naturally, through its own contradictions, gave way to a moment in history where a figure like Hegel or a figure like Marx and Engels and Lenin can take up the spirit of Heraclitus and their philosophy and refine it further um, through a more concrete uh, uh, analysis. And um, you know, the part of the the paradoxes which which I see at play is that in a variety of these Western Marxist figures, whether it's Adorno, uh, Marcuse, um, Kevin Anderson which is someone who is still alive, still writing. Um, part of the paradox is that they very much emphasize that their projects are framed sometimes in, uh, in, in the form of going back to Hegel, understanding Marx through going back to Hegel. That's something that's very much explicit in, in Shishek. He would add Lacan as well, but uh, it's going back to Hegel to avoid the mistakes of the Soviet Marxism which is also an absurd uh, category, uh, which they hold that this Soviet Marxism was mechanistic, it was vulgar, it wasn't actually dialectical, it was actually positivist. Um, and the the paradox that I show is that while sometimes they produce, you know, enjoyable and and, and worthwhile uh, texts on dialectics, you know, for instance, Marcuse's Reason and Revolution is um, is a text I, re I still recommend for people uh, who are trying to go through uh, Hegel and, and understand Hegel, while they can do that in, in one sphere, when it comes to political analysis, to taking the general principles and, and seeing how they're at play in the particular, which is part of the essence of uh, dialectical analysis, they completely fail. They assume that socialism can, from one day to another, uh, take up the ideal forms, uh, which you know were presented in, in certain conclusions in, in various texts, in Marx or in Engels or in Lenin, they assume that uh, uh, that the purity markers that they have up, which are not incompatible with certain ideals that we want to work towards, um, it's not like they're wrong. What they're wrong about is the way that they use that purity to condemn reality. And in doing so, they have nothing in common with, with Marx and Engels who, you know, think of communism through various temporalities. They have, yes, that ideal and society that's classless, stateless, moneyless, where interactions are unmediated. Uh, but they also think of communism in, in terms of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which since them, uh, since their writings have been, has just been thought of as socialism. And they also think about communism uh, in, in terms of this phrase that, uh, that appears in the German ideology and then later on in the manifesto of the Communist Party, which is communism as the real movement of history, which abolishes the present state of things. And I think that when you look at, for instance, Marx's analysis of the Paris Commune, he says it almost very explicitly. He was analyzing what forms that real movement of history, that real class struggle, that won for a short period of time, what forms did it discover? So the essence is this materialist analysis of the movement 
uh, of class struggle and what forms it creates, which means that any idea of getting these preordained a priori uh, classifications uh, through which you can measure reality to uh, see how impure it is and then uh, keep those ideas in the realm of purity, because then they say, well, that's not actually socialism, right? The USSR wasn't actually socialism. China's not actually, Cuba's not actually socialism. Therefore, the idea stays pure. It doesn't get desecrated by the meanness of trying to construct socialism in a reality uh, of, of high, imperialist hybrid warfare, of, uh, of various operations done to undermine socialism, economic, political, military, biochemical, you know, very, very forms of warfare that these socialist countries um, are forced to exist in. And, and you know, it's uh, it loses the essence of Marxism. I struggle to even call it Marxism when when that's what the analysis is, because it's it's nothing like how Marx angles or Lenin approached the world. They learned from the world. They learned from material reality and the, the objective developments in society. They didn't expect those to measure up to ideals in order to realize that, okay, I can support this, but not that. Hmm. Well, yes, uh, you, you raise a lot of in interesting points there. I think the, the one thing that occurred to me, first of all, was uh, uh, the savior must be dead for him to be the savior, and he can never really come back. Perhaps that's why so many Protestants insist there must be a thousand years of perfect, uh, sinless world before the Savior can return. Um, and perhaps that's what uh, the attitude of many Trotskyites is. Um, but to draw on some things you said there, Carlos, the, it's, I, I find that the, this reminded me of the phrase from Stalin, which was that the ultra-leftist deviation is in reality a rightist one, or something along those lines. And I was reminded of that whilst reading through your book, and it when you come to a figure such as, let's just pluck one out of the air, such as Rosa Luxemburg, she is acceptable. Now, no shade on her as a, as a revolutionary, and she was a great revolutionary and died for it, and probably wouldn't want her legacy to be distorted by opportunists and revisionists as it is. But they're, they're all allowed to revere her because she is safely dead and buried and murdered by social democrats which makes the her her um canonization by social democrats very ironic to say the least uh, you're allowed to idealize salvador Allende, undoubtedly a very brave man leading a leading a real struggle but unfortunately a flawed one which, which was destroyed by imperialism and its local collaborators and you're allowed to idealize the paris commune because it failed and it's safely buried in the past and I wondered if part of this is because in the Western left, you can make a good career for yourself in, in British terms as a union bureaucrat, as a, an acceptable talking head on television, as an ultra leftist who, when it comes to the big questions, supports in our country, it would be the Labour Party. In your country, it would be the Democrats. And we've even had the case of in there was one character in the back in the 20s and 30s, a guy called Herbert Reed, who was an anarchist who took a knighthood to become a knight of the realm, whilst retaining, of course, a perfect, pure, stateless ideal. And it seems that that, that old phrase of Stalin's is relevant here because the it's very easy, it's actually quite easy to become an ultra-leftist and be accepted by all manner of establishment uh, thinkers and in institutions, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's what has become the most indispensable in terms of the ideological legitimation of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. For the, this is something that uh, George Lukacs in his book, The Destruction of Reason, uh, lays out very, very well how it is that at the imperialist stage of capitalism, its emergence, which, you know, you could argue uh, with Lenin that it begins in the 1890s. You could argue with other folks that it begins in the fall of the um, of Reconstruction, which is something that Du Bois points out, or in the fall of the Paris Commune, that period, regardless. Uh, it, it brings about a, a sense in bourgeois philosophy where to defend the order successfully, direct apologetics is is not enough. The vast majority of people are experiencing difficulties in their everyday life. And, uh, you know, this this Prager U thing, I don't know if you guys get uh, the Prager U stuff. Oh, they, they've popped up. They've got their British equivalent who are just as bad, but are more patronizing and pretentious. <laughs> this Prager, it doesn't work for the vast majority of people. Like, uh, I would, you know, look at their their Facebook comments and the reactions. The Most of the reactions are like people laughing mm. at the posts that are promoted and there's co countless money uh, tossed so that it's, it's spread uh, wide. 
Um, so direct direct apologetics of capitalist imperialism no longer works. So they need indirect apologetics, uh, which means taking um, a, a a radical veneer, presenting yourself as radical as as countercultural as, but never attacking the essence of the system. Never looking at political economy. Never looking at imperialism, and always focusing within the domain of culture, treating uh, certain issues from. A, a very much uh, a historical and eternalist uh, perspective, and uh, that is just continuously intensified in how it's done as capitalism develops and its objective contradictions become more uh, more acute. Um, so yes, of course, they, what loses the 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 struggles that lose and and that are defeated very quickly are the ones that can be supported because those are the ones that did not have enough time to desecrate the purity of the idea because they they lost very quickly. So that Allende is an example that I use, Sankara is another example that I use. And that doesn't mean that um, that we shouldn't learn from them. Of course, we, we should learn from them. But the reason why these Western Marxists idealize them, it's because they lost uh, quick. Because if, if, if it, take Allende, you know, what did Fidel Castro tell him when they met in 71? They're coming for you. Yeah. They're coming for you. You better prepare. I don't care how many peaceful transfers of power you've had in Chile. Um, there's never been a peaceful transfer of power from one class to another. Mm. They're going to come for you. You better prepare. He didn't necessarily prepare. And there you have the result. Now, had he prepared and <laughs> had he taken these measures to protect the revolution, which would have been called by the Western Marxist dictatorial and authoritarian revolution might have survived. It might have not. But what uh, is is basically guaranteed is that if those measures would have been taken and it would have survived, Allende would have been treated in the same way that Kim Il-sung is treated, in the same way that Stalin is treated, and then Lenin in some circles, and and Mao and stuff, uh, because they, it, it would have had to desecrate its purity in order to ensure what is the most important part uh, as soon as the, the socialist revolution triumphs, which is sustaining power, sustaining hegemony, fighting off imperialism, fighting off the the national bourgeoisie that's trying to collaborate with imperial that's the main thing mm. and that's uh there's a turn in lenin after the revolution succeeds where he's like well okay uh, <laughs> how do we how do we develop a more efficient state at doing not just the things as good as the bourgeoisie did it before but better how do we develop a state that can protect uh the revolution from imperialist attacks and you know what we would now use the term hybrid warfare imperialist hybrid warfare how do we do that? And it's the same questions that are asked by the Chinese and the same questions that are asked by the Cubans. And, you know, whereas the, the Western Marxist has his ideal of the abolish, abolition of the state, um, that's, you know, the long-term idea of communism. They want to see it right then and there. The people that are actually engaged in struggle, they want to develop a strong state so that they can protect their revolutions, uh, from, from imperialist, uh, uh attacks. So, when you when you measure up what socialist experiment you're going to support in accordance with who measures up to those ideals, uh, you're going to essentially reject every single experiment of actually existing socialism that has lasted for any substantial period of time. And that's what the imperialists want, right? They're okay with, with a Marxism that rejects actually existing socialism, that accepts the great myth of empire, which is that socialism has always failed. Mm. They're perfectly fine with it. They, 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 not only are they fine with it, they consider it indispensable for all the young people, some of them coming from working class backgrounds, going into the academy, wanting to, to learn something that allows them to have a worldview that gives them clarity in their critique of capitalism. They want people to go to their Adorno, to their Horkheimer, to their Shishaks, to anyone that says that flirts with Marxism, that adds a little bit of other eclectic sources like your Heidegger and stuff and your Nietzsche, uh, but that at the end of the day is willing to delegitimize socialist experiments from the left and play an essential role uh, in, in legitimizing empire when it needs to do it. And I mean, look at Shishak now. He's the, the darling of the, oh, the NATO. It's despicable. And he did the same thing with Yugoslavia. You know, there was recently a paper yeah. from Gabriel Rockhill on uh Shishak, the imperialism's court jester or something like that, that it, it did a wonderful job at mapping out Shishak's history as uh an agent of what I've called controlled counter-hegemony or what what he calls a radical recuperator, someone who presents this radical veneer 
so that in the moments of crisis, when people are looking for ways to criticize the system, to understand it and to fight for a new world, he recuperates them into a fold that doesn't actually oppose the existing order, that has a very pessimistic view about um, you know, moving beyond capitalism, because every time it's been tried, it's failed. Right. So mm. if it's failed, it's it's the perfect form of socialist opposition. It's the form of socialist opposition that accepts Thatcher's Tina. There's no alternative. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what more is there to say? That's uh, exactly what the imperialists need in order to legitimize their their order. Well, yes, if if Allende had taken Castro's advice at best, he'd be remembered like uh, Hugo Chavez is essentially who the entire Western left turned on um when things started getting serious um they loved him until about 2002 then of course it's no coincidence that the entry of the venezuelan masses onto the scene in a serious and consistent way scared off a lot of these um, western marxists to the point where i remember over 10 years ago i was in belgium at a, a trotskyite uh, party's summer school i was in at the time and there was an american guy there who was organizing the section of this party in Venezuela and Bolivia. And most of what he talked about was opposition to um, to um, Chavez at the time and then Maduro, and then, of course, opposition to the, the traitor uh, Morales in Bolivia. That was what he talked about. Imperialism wasn't mentioned. And the more, I, the more you think about, like, the, the British left, which is what I've experienced the most, um, most of the time they don't mention imperialism. They don't talk about it. Um, they will, in passing, reference Lenin's imperialism, but they won't tell you to read it. Uh, they will talk about British capitalism, but they won't talk about British imperialism. They will fetishize the 45 to 51 Labour Party government and the social democratic reforms, but they won't critique that in terms of how that was paid for, which was an increased exploitation of um, the Malaysian colonized peoples the brutal repression of the kenyan people um the gulag system very real prison camp system that the british empire erected in kenya and other african nations all swept under the rug mm -hmm. and that's because in britain and i want to get your comment on this about the american situation the entire left other than some very small marxist leninist holdouts um will idolize that social democratic period and fetishize it they'll call Labour Party sellouts, they'll curse Keir Starmer till up and down. But when the, the heat is on, as you said about Zizek backing up imperialism when it matters, they'll back up the Labour Party when it matters. And it seems that you have a similar problem there, which is this, um, most of the American left fetishizes FDR and that period. They will talk about the pressure the working class put on to get those reforms, which is correct, that did happen. But again, they will then neglect America's role out coming out of World War II as the imperialist hyperpower. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Yeah, I, I would definitely say so and reject um, an assessment that uh, that is absolutely necessary, which is even the victories, uh, the victorious reforms that were achieved during FDR, there were concessions that were done to prevent a, a a more radical departure from the existing state of affairs and uh those site those sorts of concessions and reforms when they're giving out uh within a state that is still bourgeois where the capitalist class is still in power are subject to recall at any moment hmm. and right after the end of world war ii you have in 19 in 1947 the taft hartley act people forget yeah. that in the mid 40s uh was when the u.s had the highest rates of strikes Right. We, we tend to think about, oh, mid mid 40s, 50s, that's uh, the height of the middle class, the, the uh, golden era of American capitalism. That was when works workers were getting the things that they had won in the previous period uh, taken back. Right. Because that's what ends up happening when you get uh, reforms, reforms, calm workers for a period of time. And then when the labor movement is weakened by their operations within the organs of worker powers and, and the communist parties and socialist parties, uh, wh when that uh, weakening takes place, that's when all the the gains are rolled back, and it ends up uh, uh, it ends up in a condition where we're at now. You know, now we have certain uh, elements of the uh, the union movement that are accepting uh, socialism, and that have, for instance, Chris Malls, who just uh, uh, he was the the leader who organized the Amazon Labor Union. He just traveled to Cuba, met with uh, President Diaz Canel, 
and uh, has definitely a, a, what I infer to be a break in the sort of trade union consciousness that has existed, even in the most militant parts of the labor movement. Um, and his union was organized, of course, uh, by members of the Communist Party as well that were in New York. Um, but you have this, uh, the importance, I think, of, of the purity fetish, and, and one of the reasons why um, myself and, and other folks in, in the Institute have found it helpful for understanding reality is that it allows us to see all of these different flaws that appear, sometimes from the ultra leftists, sometimes from the right opportunists. Um, it allows us to see these flaws as not disconnected. Right, which means that it allows us to see um, the different forms that this controlled uh, counter hegemony takes in an interconnected manner. It allows us to to read it and understand it dialectically, uh, because, for instance, with the ultra left, um, their positions on on China. I mean, I I don't know uh, how much clear case you have of the purity fetish. Because China doesn't purely measure up to the ideal of a, a fully uh, centralized command state economy with no markets, it's rejected. Instead of seeing how it was that after 78, um, new discoveries in the construction and development of socialism are made that force us to understand the, the importance uh, and indispensability of developing the forces of production, the science and technology, uh, uh, security apparatuses of the state. Um, instead of learning what new forms China discovers, which is what a big part of the global South is doing, even the countries that are not headed by socialist governments, instead of learning that, they see these measures and they say, oh, that's that's not, that doesn't measure up to the ideals, and therefore it must be rejected. It's, it's actually capitalism, right? And there's a wide variety of ways in which their inability to read contradictions and, and to read um, uh, China's development as a process and to to have the social totality uh, in view, there's a there's a wide variety of ways in which this uh, purity fetish manifests itself in various areas. For instance, the fact that capital does exist in China and to very large extents, there are billionaires in China, there is markets in China and a lot of activity is done through the market, doesn't negate the fact that that Private ownership and markets are both auxiliaries of the state command economy uh, and, and, and of socialist, uh, properly socialist uh, uh, property. And uh, what people fail to understand is that when you have the social totality and they point out, oh, but there's capitalist prop private property here and there's markets there, therefore it's not socialist. They assume that a mode of life, a mode of production is only one that there's only one form of production. When if you look at the, the works of Marx, Engels, Lenin, if you just study uh, you know modes of life themselves, you realize that there's a dominant form of production and then all the other auxiliary forms of production that exist around it are mediated uh, by that dominant form of production. That takes place uh, within capitalism and that's taking place uh, within the socialist market economy that China has. But because it doesn't measure up to this pure ideal, the Western left rejects it, and uh, of course, the cries of uh, you know authoritarian capitalism or state capitalism in the non-Leninist derogatory sense, they uh, they come out. Another example of this uh, through parts of the the ultra left is a phenomenon which uh, I, I focus on in the case of the U.S. Um, it exists in parts of, uh, of of Europe, but there's very much. Uh, the development of something that Georgi Dimitrov called national nihilism in the U.S., where because America's history is impure, because it contains, of course, very hideous parts, the enslavement of, of Black people, the genocide of the natives, imperialism, and, you know, it's a horrendous history. Because it contains that, then that, that negative part, it's treated synecdocally as the social totality. And so America ends up being reduced to that negative part and uh, this ignores the fact that within the social totality of America, there's an objective contradiction where there's that pole. And then in the underbelly of that uh, history, there's a, a history of struggles and that that history is not outside of America, as many of them tried to paint. They say, you know, these progressive struggles, they were 
struggles against America. That's not the case. Those were struggles within the social totality that tried to get some of the kernels of the founding project in 1776 and take them to what they uh, saw as the, the the logical and practical conclusion, which uh, many of them saw saw it as uh, socialism. So you have this one-sided view of America as a social totality that doesn't take into account um, uh, the objective contradictions which, which exist and how it is that these ought to be used, these must necessarily be used in order to rearticulate our people's consciousness towards socialism, right? If you go up to an American worker and you tell them that, uh, you know, everything that McCarthyism and anti-communism has told you about socialism is true. It actually is anti-American and there's nothing in common with the traditions that you have uh, grown up in and, and, and have embedded your life in. And socialism, <laughs> they're not going to ride with you. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to walk 10 feet away. You know, they're not going to talk to you with a 10-foot pole. But if you tell them, look, there's this rich history of socialism that is ignored, whitewashed, um, and denigrated in our history books. And that history of socialism has seen that the values which you cherish and which the country was founded on, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, um, right to revolution, national self-determination, self government of, by, and for the people, these rights are unrealizable under the existing order, under the existing uh, relations of production. And in order to actually achieve those concretely, we need socialism. That That's a much more fruitful approach. So the, the purity fetish not only prevents uh, those that have it from actually coming to know the world concretely and correctly, because they can't see contradictions, they can't see things in movement, they can't see things in process. It also prevents them from successfully organizing the working classes. It makes them revolutionary uh, futile. And so it's it's not uh, without reason that the dominance of this outlook in the West has, uh, has uh, the, the places where this outlook has dominated has been the places where they have not been able to develop any substantial revolutionary movements over the last hundred years or more. Hmm. Well, uh, you have that very, really interesting quote from Lenin when you're talking about uh, national nihilism, where he, of course, is talking about the fact that they, the Bolsheviks, have stood against uh, the great Russian chauvinism, the crimes of the Tsar, the pogroms, the torture chambers. But he's he's also making a counterpoint to that and saying it's not that we as communists don't have a love for our homeland, our language, our culture, all these parts of this legacy, which we embrace and seek to make better under the under this new system um that's a very straightforward explanation of it that also interestingly enough is a counterpoint to the russian nationalists as well but that's another story uh their view of lenin which is wholly wrong but the on the on the american question and britain as well because your history and ours are of course very intertwined when it comes to the imperialist period we get the same phenomena over here people on the left many of whom by the way have spent the last three weeks telling you to vote for the labor party uh saying um uh, this is a terrible place. Everybody is a white supremacist, even even the people who aren't white. Um, we will never see revolution because everybody's uh, hooked into um, this terrible imperialist culture. The working class is hopelessly corrupted. We can't do anything. And that's a really great, uh, again, as I said before, that's a great way of getting into the Guardian or the liberal press actually saying that. Because uh, a lot of those people, again, supported an imperialist institution like the European Union. And so... It, what it is it's deliberate paralysis because you have then bought you have painted yourself into a corner you can't approach the workers as you say with that message no one's going to take you seriously and rightly so and yet at the same time you can't go you can't go beyond this tiny agitational circle um so you're stuck and i think that that's a it's a great way a great trick for leading younger people in particular who are angry rightly and want to find answers into something which looks very radical but in actual fact is objectively serving imperialism. You know, you mentioned in the book that it's another form of like American exceptionalism. Oh, yeah. Believing that we are the worst nation. No one has ever been worse than us. It sounds like something that Trump would say, you know. Um, but and I wonder I wonder your thoughts about that about further for taking that point point further. I, I re recently had this very uh baffling argument on Twitter, as all Twitter arguments are usually baffling. But when when you say, as you should, as all communists should, I think that you have to have an approach to uh, people who are either recently went through the state forces, so army, 
police, other other institutions, and came out the other side and might be bitter and angry and need some answers. You need to have an we we need to have an approach to those people. We also need to, when the situation gets more severe, have something of an approach to the people still inside those institutions who are come from working class families, who in the American case often come from minority families as well, and who are the sharp end of American capitalism. There needs to be an approach to reach those people. But the first response you get is always, no, no, this is all horrendous. You, you're a bunch of fascists for suggesting such a thing. So I wondered your thoughts on that. And like, does this purity fetish basically, is it set up to preclude any serious development that could actually take communist ideas into the areas they need to go to? Oh, absolutely. And that's the second form in, in the, the last chapter. I look at specifically the U.S. I develop, uh, you know, how it is that the objective conditions for revolution are here, which makes, you know, these subjective flaws that are grounded on the purity fetish all the more dangerous. Um, but uh, I, I developed three forms, right? That position that uh, the Western left takes to socialist countries, um, which it's just absurd. You have a working class that's been told that communism is evil every time it's been tried. And uh, you're just going to tell them, yeah, 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 that's all true. But we, the virtuous West, we're the ones that are going to get it right. It's it's absurd. We should be doing the opposite, telling them, look at the successes of socialism. We can do this too, if not much better, because those countries are doing it under the boot of imperialist hybrid warfare. The second form that uh, uh, that it takes here, uh, as, as I describe it, is what you're talking about, right? Uh, which is which part of the working class is pure enough to be approached. Um, and uh, in the US, I think the dominant form that this has taken has been the rejection of the, the part of the working class that voted for Trump. Mm. Um, they don't have the most uh, perfect views on certain social issues because they don't meet the standard of purity. We cannot go organize them. And that ends up making communists then the people that just preach to the crowd. There's no way of uh, building a successful communist movement if you are not bringing into the movement people who don't already agree with you. It's uh, absurd to, to think about, but it, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that takes place uh, here in, in the U.S. and various communist organizations that see this part of the working mass as a fascist threat. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as someone who has organized uh, my whole organizing life in that part of the country that they're saying that these workers are are presenting the fascist threat from, it's completely absurd because when I go up to them, I think that, in you know, besides the most militant parts of the labor uh, movement, they're the ones with the most advanced social consciousness. They're the ones that are wary of what they call the deep state and of uh, globalists and, and uh, all these things that are at, at its root, really just capitalist imperialism. They're uh, skeptical of news. They think that the news is lying to them in the interest of, of big monopoly capital or big pharma or, or the military or, or you know, uh, Wall Street or whatever. They have in very in various cases a, a tremendously advanced social consciousness that is very easily rearticulatable to socialism. It's very easy to take them from there to 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 a proper Marxist analysis of society. And in many ways, when you do that, they're like, "Wow, you just gave me words for something that I already thought but didn't know how to articulate." And the question that you're bringing up with people who were formerly in the military or who are uh, in the military and in these different offices. Uh, that are basically, you know, what Lenin called the armed bodies mm. of men. Uh, um, the problem; these are recruited from the working class in the U.S. Um, in every high school, in every university, you have people giving out flyers for recruitment. They promise people that they're never going to be sent out. Uh, they tell them you're going to get a free education. Right? They go to poor communities that can't afford an education. You'll get free education. You'll get a health care. You get everything that society uh, denies you, and you won't get sent to war. Mm. Wow, that's wonderful, right? <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. So you had a, a situation like uh, when I was an undergrad, most of the people that we were organizing with uh, on the Bernie campaign and doing socialist activities in, in town, most of them were uh, in the National Guard because mm. of that. They otherwise wouldn't have been able to go to college. And these are people that had a, a longing to know. They they read beyond class, which, you know, now to get uh, one of my students to even do the reading is insane. These people were not only doing that, but they were reading beyond uh, class, Marxist theory and stuff. Um, but they got, uh, they got enlisted to get an education. Halfway through, uh, they get sent out to various parts, Qatar, various parts of the world. And boom, the education goes to shit. And the vast majority of the people that are in 
you know, the armed forces in the U.S. It's 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 a result of that. It's poverty. They're not able to to meet the the material and 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 beyond material needs, and they uh, they are presented with this option that gives them everything that uh, they that society should be providing for them, but it's not. Uh, and it's quite intentional, so that people can continue enlisting in these in these bodies. And of course, we should be speaking out to these people. A lot of them are the ones that, because they're in the inside, they see how all of the actions that the U.S. takes abroad are based on lies, mm. because they're there. <laughs> and so you you get some of the biggest uh, spokespeople against the war, people like in the U.S., like Mike Preisner. Um, Mike Preisner was someone that was in the Iraq war, saw the bullshit, came back, and it's one of the leading anti-war voices. You know, how was it that the Bolsheviks won the revolution? They had to appeal to those armed bodies of men that then flipped and, and, and you know, were essential for the uh, for the Bolshevik uh, revolution. It's It's been the same in other experiments. For instance, the, the Portuguese, right? The Portuguese yeah. uh, revolution is, is important thanks to the the what were at the time the armed bodies of the state uh which were of course as always recruited uh from the ranks of of the working class so that is definitely a manifestation of the purity fetish is a good portion of people that uh in the u.s of the ultra left that say you know these are just the foot soldiers of imperialism i'm perfectly fine with the suicide rates that uh occur when they come back from war i'm perfectly fine with their ptsd and their homelessness i don't care they deserve it because they're imperialist uh, foot soldiers and it's just completely absurd it's a losing message that paints on you know a very much conservative and uh reactionary at times worldview it paints a radical gloss over it um and uh ultimately again not only prevents them from actually understanding things correctly but from actually succeeding uh, in the realm of practice and to go back to um you know the the question of how the national uh, past is viewed and you you brought up American exceptionalism. It is a form of American exceptionalism uh, that's glossed over um, through a form of self-flagellation and hatred, right? A, a sort of self-guilt um, because it ends up being the case that, well, if socialism is this universal uh, that in order to exist has to be concretized through the particular, that's just a, a basic uh, way that dialectics understands the relationship of the universal to the particular whereas you know philosophy before saw that the universal is that which exists in the same form across space and time uh the universals in one end and the particulars in another they're separated very uh, you know very distinctively the the dialectical tradition says that no that there's a dialectical interaction between the universal and the particular such that uh in order the universal is is, is only that which is always concretized through the particular that means that socialism as this universal project has to take different forms in the particular places it is being waged in when it's done in the u.s this means that we must look back at our history we must look back at our progressive movements and have uh develop a a, a, a develop marxism in our context what we've called sometimes american marxism which we see rooted in the analysis of wb du bois um, as the first person to properly grasp, you know, the the forms class struggle takes in the U.S. that are in part unique to the U.S., um, we need to develop a concrete an analysis of our situation from the Marxist point of view. Uh, but socialism has to take a an American form. And that's the analysis that Dimitrov uh, provides, in, in essence, in the place where he's talking about how it is that we fight fascism and Nazism, right? Socialism is the content that takes uh par particular national forms and if if you have a big chunk of the left rejecting uh the progressive traditions of our country reducing the history of our country to just the most evil things you're not going to be able to realize this project of having the content be socialism and having that content take a determinate form in the american characteristics that it will necessarily take if it's if it's going to arise yeah, I mean, when you when you put it like that, and when you uh, read how you put it in the book, it seems something which should be intuitive. It should be very much easy to grasp if you've taken the taken the Marxist tradition seriously. If you've actually read how Lenin, Stalin, and others addressed the problem of the Communist Party's organizing in the imperialist countries, 
they they never went down the ro the road of saying no all the the working class are irredeemable because they were serious people who thought there was a chance to build a revolutionary movement in this country which of course there is and a lot of this of course does come from well theorists like marcuse who in um uh, one dimensional man and then the later essay on liberation um he denied later that he uh, decentered the working class but in reality he had he was saying it needed to be triggered by the lumpen lumpenized elements or racial minorities because it was hopelessly bought off which was showed he'd done no interrogation of the actual reality of american working class life at all because even in my own cursory readings of it the new deal mythology um for 50s and 60s this idea of capitalist prosperity and welfare capitalism it left a huge chunk of the american working class still poor and outside of the labor unions and living uh not exactly as they've been in the 30s but certainly not the um ideal that the upper end of the working class did reach in that sort of 50s 60s period so maybe like a particularly well-paid detroit car worker for instance had for a while maybe but most of the american working class was still poor like those alabama miners were still poor um the people in uh, what's it called the the old documentary harlan county usa those miners that were on strike in the early 70s in the, during the nixon administration all still desperately poor so marcuse had to ignore all of these contradictions and just focus on the most shallow thing possible as much shallow analysis possible to come up with this at this thing this this idea and then it is embraced and repeated to death by all of his academic followers but again like any research into american working class life would show you that that's not true and that of course even the part that he was referring to of the working class that upper end which was a minority that's gone now that's all that's all gone like the the well-paid uh single wage family um the detroit car workers long gone the um the well-paid steel workers long gone and yet you get the left still repeating this idea that the american working class is still living as a minority of it was 60 years ago and yet the fiction still retains itself it's remarkable really right it's a it's a pseudo radical of trickle down economic pseudo radical version of trickle down economics because you're yeah. in the empire this is all trickling down to uh to your working classes and they're just completely bought off and you know what marcuse does with the working class is something that uh in general is done of course with with socialist countries where particular uh flaws are reified they're taken away from their context the paradox is this is the guy that in invents the this very nice phrase which is that you cannot understand facts separated from their factors it's a nice play on words right that i that i use often but he that's what he does he understands mm -hmm. facts in a way that's uh separated disconnected from the factors in which they're necessarily embedded um, but he, he understands, uh, he, he gets this small portion of the working class, which in the Leninist tradition, we would call the labor aristocracy, which is not the whole working class. It's not every union worker. It's not the rank and file. It's the leadership, the leadership of certain unions that have been, uh, bought off by imperialist super profits. And they go along with the projects of their national bourgeoisie, which in the case of our national bourgeoisie uh, means going along with uh, imperialism. So you have, uh, for instance, various unions around that time that are supporting imperialist operations abroad, right? Uh, the coup in Chile, for instance, was supported, I believe it was uh, by the AFL-CIO, uh, might have been by, by the United Auto uh, Workers. You know, the same thing with uh, the war in Vietnam, right? It's It's a difficult situation but that's not how the rank and file felt that's not how the vast majority of workers in america felt and um you know just the analysis that uh that he provides is so unrooted in the marxist tradition because the proletariat is the revolutionary agent not because uh they're the ones who are naturally um disenchanted by the existing order or the most oppressed um, the proletariat is a revolutionary agent of history because they are the one that in this mode of life produces surplus value. It is out of their labor that surplus value is extracted. And out of that extraction, capitalism is able to survive and, you know, do a variety of different things. So they're at, at the pressure points of capital. And that's why they are seen as primarily, um, the, the revolutionary agents. That doesn't mean that other classes other popular classes can't be involved in the revolution they should be um but it's not just they're uh, that they're oppressed that's not what leads them 
to being categorized by Marx as the revolutionary agent. It's because they create surplus value. So in that movement from like the working class to uh, just minorities or the lump in or the students, that is a turn away from Marxism. That's a turn away from a scientific understanding of capitalist uh, society and what elements within this social totality point the way forward towards a new social totality. Um, but uh, we've had in since that time where there was a small a development of a small middle class of a middle class that was primarily a, a phenomenon that uh, occurred within uh, the white part of the working class. It wasn't very uh, prominent in in the black uh, working class. Um, since that, we've had over the last fifty years austerity, union busting, liberalization, deregulation, and just the destruction of the labor movement. We have, I think, seven to nine percent of workers are unionized. But in that seven to nine percent, the question that they don't ask is how many people are actually active? The vast majority of people are just paying union dues and they're not active at all in any of the processes. Um, so it's a very, very dire situation that the American people are in, not just in terms of their material conditions where you have to work, you know, if you're a family, two or three jobs, right, um, to survive just to get by. Uh, but even the organs through which you can wage a fight for better conditions have been just completely obliterated. So we've had this phenomenon. The bourgeois theorists call it the destruction of the middle class. At the Institute, we've been referring to it uh, through a concept that um, one of our leading theorists is a, a carpenter uh, or as uh, as as much of an organic intellectual as you can get today. Uh, Noah Krashevik, he calls it reproletarianization. He mm -hmm. sees that this part of the working class that was lifted up uh, during that period of the development of the middle class uh, has been re-proletarianized. Um, and this brings certain contradictions that we have to tarry with. For instance, the uh, the petty bourgeois consciousness that exists in various parts of the left, uh, the sort of PMC engagement um, that uh, that is pretty much in most organizations in the left, if not all of them, this is a result of the fact that this class has been re-proletarianized, but it has sustained some of the consciousness of its previous class, some of the ethical uh, norms and ways of interacting of, of its previous class positions. And uh, they're, they're moving in ways that they want to oppose the system, but there's not that consciousness of the fact that their consciousness and, and a lot of times their material uh, positions make it so that... Um, their natural inclinations end up just being towards uh, these forms of political practices that are just, you know, controlled counter hegemony. And um, yeah, I bring up in the book, the term of the iron triangle, like they shape the, the political practices that they do outside through the way that they engage uh, in relations through uh, the iron triangle of the media, the NGOs and, and the academy. And that uh, working class people don't want to be, uh, they, they, they they don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. The same, same person, Noah, he's a member of the Communist Party. He's, he's often asked, you know, why don't you bring your co-workers? Who he's, he's all, uh, he's gotten all of them to agree with with the need of a Communist Party and, and with communism. Why don't you bring them to club meetings? <laughs> He'd be embarrassed uh, because yeah. they get there and feels like an HR or, or diversity, equity, and inclusion meeting, right? And uh, all, all of those things have to be overcome. There's there's material and ideological flaws within the organizations that would serve as uh, the vehicle through which the subjective conditions for revolution would be developed. The material flaws are, of course, the, the class position of a lot of these agents within the PMC. Um, and uh, the ideo ideological flaws are the ones that I tease out in the book, which is the purity fetish outlook, which mm -hmm. prevents them again uh, from not just understanding the world correctly through a dialectical materialist worldview, but prevents them from organizing workers. Yes, and it also prevents them from actually drawing upon the positive examples that do exist in the world, uh, not just historically, right. but currently. So even if we were talking about, you talk in the book about the objective situation inside the United States, heading towards um, a revolutionary situation, just the, the sheer decay of American capitalism. I mean, just look at the number of banks that are teetering on the edge of going under or who have, who have been gone through a shotgun wedding to Goldman Sachs or something in the last just couple of weeks. Clearly, something major is brewing, not just in America, but most of the imperialist world. And yet, most of the left won't even look to other places to learn from them. 
So, like, if you talk about like the problems in both uh, the United States and Britain, and in France, which is uh, in tumult at the moment, um, you have de- the mass deindustrialization. You have the whole areas of the country that have never recovered from that. You have people, as you said, working two, three, however many temporary jobs just to try and make ends meet and feed their children. And then you, we as communists should not only have a response to that in terms of resistance, we should have a vision to give these people. And part of that must be inspired by uh, the the examples we've got, like, you know, China overcoming feudalism and imperialism and achieving all the things that they have. The DPRK, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about that. The fact that they have been under siege for 70 years and have built everything that they have. You know, the examples of working class power being exercised in places like Venezuela. And yet that purity fetish you identify would preclude most of the left referring to any of that. And they'll just say, uh, resist in an abstract way because they have no vision. And I would argue also part of this is that they have tacitly accepted decay. I think that the, this you mentioned the whole Iron Triangle thing, the NGO at academy, the, in the academy. The NGOs are predicated now on getting budgets from the state to manage poverty for the state, I think, and in a lot of American cities from what I can see. It's a similar situation in Britain. So you've got these vast homelessness areas, and the, rather than say, well, we need a radical program to rehouse these people and get them off whatever the hell they're addicted to and help them, to be part of the working class again, it's no, we'll manage the situation, you know? And of course, then that brings up the contradictions with the working class who don't want the areas of their city like to be a homeless encampment, not because they don't care about these people, but because it brings all kinds of negative social consequences. And yet the left can't talk about that because there's no positive vision left anymore. It's just an, an, it's an embrace of, it's, it's an embrace of capitalist decay, I think. Absolutely. What's that uh, the Churchill phrase? Uh, Capitalism is the worst system, but it's the, the best one. It's better than all the alternatives. That's what the left ends up accepting mm. here. Um, and, you know, I would love for the working people in the United States to go to China because you have, you know, like level seven, eight, uh, it's level seven rated provinces in China, like not major cities, not Shanghai, not Beijing. And they make New York look like a dump. Mm. They make the best cities in the United States look like a dump. These massive skyscrapers, you know, uh, people, 90% or so of people own their homes. The people that are renting out, it's like an extremely small percentage of their paycheck. The places that they live at are beautiful. There's access because they have extra income to do basically everything. And they're constantly developing and improving, whereas the stuff here is just completely decaying and it's it's moribund and uh you know there there was a quote from from deng and uh that's something along the lines of we will show the superiority superiority of socialism when regular people can just show up to the country and see that with their direct engagements how socialism is superior and you could do that today with china there was a point in time before the overthrow of the Soviet Union where you could do it with the Soviet Union. And uh, that uh, boosted the movement uh, for socialism here in the U.S. because you had leading black intellectuals uh, and, and and radical intellectuals going to the Soviet Union and saying, this is awesome. Mm. <laughs> this is unlike anything that we have back home. You know, I don't feel uh, racism here. And, you know, it's it's just incredible. You're, you could do that now with China as well. And you're, you're one of the things we do on our streams is uh, often show... Uh, comparisons between Chinese cities or Chinese train stations and American train stations, because those are all things that if the working people of our country saw, they uh, they would see that socialism is a viable alternative, a society that's ran by a communist party as the ex- expression of the vanguard of the working class. It is an alternative that even under the most conditions, a better form of life for them and their families and their loved ones. And the left cannot uh, use that such powerful tool for organizing working people today. They can't use it because they reject China because they see it as authoritarian capitalism or state capitalism or whatever. Or take the case of Cuba. You know, Cuba is, uh, it's been kept poor and it's got a lot of difficulties, but look at what the people who go on brigades say. You know, it's a wonderful society. It's, it's wonderful. And it makes us rethink a lot of the assumptions that we had about Cuba and a lot of the assumptions that, you know, we had about our own country. Um, or just regular tourists, people that are not going on, on brigades. So, when you reject 
the actual experiments that have uh, been embarked on to construct socialism, uh, and you do that from a country where the big lie has been that socialism has never worked, it just leads to genocide and poverty and, and making everyone poor, you're never going to be able to succeed. You're never going to be able to succeed. And we we have to succeed. We have to succeed. Our, 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 our rulers are literally taking us to the precipice of nuclear Armageddon. They don't care. They're willing to do everything to sustain a hegemony that is very clearly crumbling. There's estimates that uh, in terms of uh, international trade, less than 30% of it is going to be done in the dollar by 2030. <laughs> dollar hegemony is dying it's dying out of that comes the power to sanction economies and to do all a big chunk of uh the things that are most essential for the imperialist toolbox uh so it's a dying society that working people are feeling here at home and you know part of what the left does here is uh specifically some communist organizations it criticizes biden's foreign policy not often very correctly, but it criticizes the foreign policy, but then praises the national stuff, what it does at home. <laughs> um, and it's absurd because it, again, you're not thinking dialectically. The, the foreign policy and the national policy, you can't separate the one from the other, mm. especially when, you know, th our country is the imperial hegemon of, of, of the global world. And so if the ruling class cannot ruin the old way internationally, they can't do so nationally either, right? You're mm. seeing the big splits within the ruling class, and you're seeing that 20% of the population approves of what Congress does regularly. 60-something mm. percent, uh, actually close to 80%, are disenchanted by the two-party system and want third-party alternatives. What does that mean? Well, that the population itself is not ready to continue in the old way. And with this, you have the material conditions that are getting more and more difficult for regular people. Well, all of those factors are the ones that have been traditionally considered by the Marxist-Leninist left, the key components of uh, assessing whether we are in, a, in an objective revolutionary condition or not. And uh, we meet every single one. What we're missing is an organization that has ideological clarity, that's not uh, burdened by the, you know, that's PMC uh, aura and by the, the purity fetish, and that can get to the massive people and organize them in a revolutionary manner. People have been showing that they want they they want something new and they're willing to act on it. We had close to mm. 30 million people in the streets, the largest protests in American history, uh, two years ago, uh, which were the George Floyd protests. And you know, you had people of all creeds, and and the anger wasn't just at the the lynching of George Floyd, uh, which was horrific. It was an anger that was aimed at the system, but that mm. didn't have a vehicle towards which it could direct that uh, movement towards, uh, you know, actually opposing the existing order. And so it ended up just sort of getting absorbed in the vote for Joe Biden uh, uh, thing. So we need these organizations to be built. And insofar as the vehicles which can serve these functions continue to tell people we have this fascist threat with Trump, therefore we have to vote for Joe Biden. And it doesn't matter if, you know, we tiptoe into, you know, nuclear Armageddon, the death of humanity, the destruction of the planet, at least we'll have a president that is a little better on like LGBTQ issues, right? Insofar as that continues to be the case, we're, we're doomed. Mm. And there's organizations here that have a lot of resources that have international recognition that have a lot of potential if they were doing the right things and not guided by the purity fetish, a lot of potential to organize the American people in a revolutionary manner and make a difference. It, the materials there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad that uh, there's conditions that are not allowing these organizations to function as the Vanguard vehicle that they can function as. Uh, but everything is subject to, to flux and everything can change in any moment. And, um, uh, what we're sure of is that the consciousness of the American people, regardless of what region of the country you're in, whether you're in the more liberal coastal areas or in the more conservative central areas of the country, the consciousness of the American people is such that they are tired of the way things are. Mm -hmm. They want a radical change in their, in their everyday life. And they are consistently being 
uh, uh, hidden from any alternatives. They, they, they don't know what it, an alternative looks like. And we can provide that only if we remove the purity fetish. Exactly. And that's a very good way to uh, bring our discussion to a close, uh, Carlos. It's been uh, an excellent uh, run through of a lot of really interesting issues that you bring out in the book. Uh, the book is called The, the Purity Fetish and the Crisis of Western Marxism. It's available in many good bookshops and uh, several less good ones as well. Uh, but uh, Carlos, it's been a really interesting hour here. Um, thank you for coming on today. And uh, we hope you'll join us again at some point in the future. Absolutely. Thank you again for such a wonderful conversation. Old John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. While weep the sons of Bondachu, we ventured all to say. But though he lost his life while struggling for the slave, his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. John Brown was a hero, undaunted, true, and brave. And Kansas knows his valor when he fought or rights to save. Now, though the grass grows green above his grave, his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so few. And frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. John Brown was John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see. Christ who of the bondsman shall the liberator be. And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free. His soul is marching on. The conflict that he heralded, he looks up from heaven to view. On the army of the Union with its flag red, white, and blue. And heaven shall ring with anthems o'er the deed they mean to do. His soul is marching. freedom then strike while strike ye may the death blow of oppression is a better time and way for the dawn of old john brown is brightening today and his soul is marching